Dare to Explore is presented by the Space Camp Explorers Club, a new way to support the U.S. Space and Rocket Center and Space Camp. Members of the Space Camp Explorers Club gain exclusive access to content, behind-the-scenes stories, and members-only swag. To learn more, visit SpaceCampExplorersClub.org. We live in a culture that doesn't have a strong attention span. But space is long-term. Space exploration and the journey, particularly if you really intend to get off this planet and live somewhere. The commitment, how did we get to the moon? What happened? The journey of space exploration can do a lot for our world. Kenny Mitchell is a retired NASA engineer who worked on the design of the original Saturn V rocket that first took man to the moon. He developed environmental control and life support systems for Skylab and the International Space Station. And he served as an ambassador in Moscow to orchestrate the Russian involvement in the ISS. I'm Ryan Faricelli. Join me as we learn what makes this extraordinary individual dare to explore. I've got a spaceship that I'm waiting for. I'm flying up to the stars. I'm gonna dare to explore this time. And I'll let you know what I find. This is a special place, Huntsville, Alabama. Where Dr. Von Brown got all of the rocketry right. you know, started here. Um, how did you first hear about what was happening in this well, area? Well, see, I went to school with the German children and, uh, and American children who worked for the Army. Uh, one lady, uh, one girl in particular, when I was in the 10th grade, her name was Jean Nickerson, and her father was John Nickerson. And he's the one that spilt the be- beans to the American public that the Army, not the Navy, had access to space to put the first satellite into space. And that we were being restricted by Charles E. Wilson, the Secretary of Defense at the time, because Eisenhower said he didn't want the military putting up our first satellite. It was going to be peaceful. Well, he had the Navy doing it, so I was thinking <laughs> it was all politics. Right. And so Nickerson got court-martialed for General Madaris, who was in charge of Army Ballistic Missile Agency, uh, had had to court-martial him. And so I was aware that Gene's father was maybe going to have to go to prison. And uh, So they sent him to Panama, exiled him, uh, took his, he was a colonel, uh, took his rank away from him, made him a private. That was when I was aware of what was going on at the arsenal. But when Sputnik launched, you know, I was aware of all that. Right. But I didn't have an appetite. Uh, I was... I was not dumb in high school, but I didn't have a lot of ambition. I was thinking of joining the Navy or Army like my brother, brothers had. And when we put our first satellite up, we were all parked, you know, making out at the old golf course, and my brother comes roaring in. We could hear firecrackers and everything, so we went downtown, and we were celebrating the launch of, <laughs> of Explorer 1. And I didn't have a foggiest idea at that time that one year later, my mother and my fiance, which was my wife, who's passed away now, but we were married for 58 years. They said, uh, we want you to go to college, not to not to the military. 
I went to Auburn University as a co-op, so I got involved with uh, rockets and everything in a big way, and I got addicted to it. You know, just uh, I learned more in my co-op experiences here than I ever learned in college about thermodynamics and all the kind of technical things you had to understand. So the appetite grew, and then I became a, a collector, and I've collected stuff for 60 years. <laughs> and I've given the museum a lot of stuff, but I am, I am sold on the space program. The value of it, I, it has been so politicized, started with Nixon, we can't afford that and do the war and the shuttle drug on forever and finally put itself out of business due to the cost. But as an old man, I am really encouraged by Elon Musk and SpaceX. He's, he's as close to Von Braun. I worked for Von Braun for 10 years. And I had actually personal meetings with him because he loved spontaneously just coming down where people worked. Well, he was he was famous for uh, a lot a lot of people tell stories about how he would not talk to the the people in charge. He would rather He hang didn't go out. chain of command. Right, he would he rather would hang show out with the people on the ground. Yeah. And he would learn who's doing what. In my personal meetings uh, when I was a young engineer, he didn't like solid rocket motors. He thought liquid propellant was something you could throttle, you could control. Right. And he wanted to understand the thermal characteristics. I was in thermal control, base heating, you know, all that flame and smoke coming right. out the bottom. Don't burn up the bottom and the rocket blow up. And he spent several weeks coming over. <laughs> See, we didn't have view graphs, and those were all terms we learned later. We had flip charts. Right. You, know, you were using magic markers. Von Brown's on his way. He's going to want to know <laughs> where are we today. And you know, let's try to summarize it. We were writing down on these flip charts. What was he? What was he like? He was engineer's engineer. He's everything that you read about. It wasn't hyperbole. He he is so. And I got stories in my book. You'll read uh, as well as quotes. I, I collected quite a few quotes over his lifetime. Mm-hmm. But those of us that are still alive that work with him uh, have have our stories if we interacted with him and and. Uh, I was in a meeting where we were finalizing how we were controlling the Apollo telescope mount, and he said he's worried about the pump that was on the canister jittering. <laughs> you know, a pump vibrates, and so we had it on vibration isolation mounts. Anyway, he asked us, why don't we look at heat pipes? Here we were, spent several years completing and building hardware already, Right. and he asked us about something I didn't even know what it was. <laughs> Because he read stuff all the time. We told him we'd go look at it. I like I knew what he was talking about. Right. <laughs> right. I had to go find out what, what's a heat pipe. And, uh, and the thing that saved us was it'd never be able to be proven. It worked in a 1G environment. It depended on microgravity. So you were- We came back and convinced him, showed him all our data, and he, he said, okay, we're going with what you got. And it worked perfectly, right. you know, what we had. So, But he just loved- making sure his engineers uh, kept their hands dirty. Well, most of what Houston flies and operates, we built. Most of what Cape launches, we designed and built, tested here, and sent it down there and it's ready to go. This is the cradle of American space exploration. Uh, Musk, you know, if you know much about him, I don't care how much dope he smokes. He is definitely <laughs> out of the box. And he's launching the Starship, and it's crashing. He says, that's okay. I got to know him right over here. 
And that's the way Von Braun was. He thought every failure was a learning experience. He never, and NASA now does this a whole lot. I'm wringing my hands for the microphone. Right. Risk aversion. Afraid of failure. Afraid the program will be stopped. Afraid, afraid, afraid. And that was a big difference because back then you were you were really testing everything. You know, we had more hardware than you could shake a stick at. <laughs> you know what we got today? Paper, paper, and we simulations, paralysis by analysis. And he got hardware out the gazoo. It just reminds me of the '60s. <laughs> you know, you were part of working on on some pretty huge NASA programs uh, when you were at the the Marshall Space Flight Center. Obviously, the Saturn rockets, sort of the largest thing uh, in that in the time 60s. period. So you worked on the, mm. the the one, the one B, and the five. That's right. They were evolutionary. The engines were two. I got a lot closer to the boosters when they were being fired than they would ever let you do now. And <laughs> and I, I tell you, when we lit the booster that was called Saturn One booster, it was pointed towards Huntsville, the exhaust system. And I was up on a hill not very far away with a lot of other engineers to watch the test. And and when that heat wave and that sound hit us, all our clothes were doing this. (laughs) Just flapping in the wind. And I'd yell, and I couldn't even hear myself. And the awesome power. This was the smallest Saturn. Right. (laughs) So here at the museum, they've got the first time we fired the Saturn V booster, with five F1 engines, we had pointed the booster this time at Decatur <laughs> because at Huntsville, the noise was propagated under certain environmental conditions where the shock waves would knock out the windows of the mall 10 miles away. And that just gives you some idea of the awesome power this thing had. What do you th- what do you think when you, watch, when you watch a test like that? I mean, you helped make that. I know, it's That's- sort of... It makes you feel even smaller, <laughs> even <laughs> though you're proud. You say, my God, it worked. <laughs> you know, because we were looking at new materials that would survive this kind of environment, both heat and dynamically, you know, and, uh, and not come apart because if the heat shields and the curtains around those engines that would move if they burnt through, the gases as you're going into altitude they're expanding the plumes, and the plumes are reversing gas and throwing it back up to the heat shield. Right. And the good thing is the air is getting thinner. So it's getting colder. So, uh, yeah, so it's less convection, but it's still hotter. Right. Hell. So you've got all sorts of things going on that, that when you were working with the thermodynamics of that, you had the just the friction of the air. You had the everything that was coming out radiation. of the rocket. Yeah, all, the radiation. all the radiation. And so it was hot, and... Uh, we never got to look at it. It all fell in the ocean. Right. But we had a lot of instrumentation, and we were worried about the aerodynamic heating, which is friction as you're going to reach a speed of 17,500 miles an hour to get into orbit. So we had to design it, and most of it was aluminum. Right. And aluminum begins to come unglued at 200 degrees Fahrenheit. I was going to say, yeah, I thought and aluminum melts So you melts had to pretty... really uh, look at it, and you got to remember we were doing slide rules. <laughs> We in, in an analog kind of computer. We had nothing like what we have. Nothing. We had the equations. We didn't have the tools. That's it's an amazing. I can't hardly believe it myself that we built this monster. The climate of the the era when all of this began. You know, you had 
the Vietnam War was going on. Uh, the, the civil rights movement was happening. Um, we you know, were you the only people good were being thing. assassinated. We were the only good thing. We were the bright light for people because they got so excited about Mercury, Gemini, then going to the moon because there was a hell of a lot of bad stuff going on. Good, uh, good changes were taking place, but it was not easy. Train like an astronaut and get lost in space at the U.S. Space and Rocket Center. Exclusive family weekend programs are available to try your hand at piloting the shuttle and is based on both the past and future of space exploration. Pilot the space shuttle and attempt to land safely with the museum shuttle experience. Your team of up to four participants must work together to land the shuttle and bring the crew safely home. Museum admission is required. Find out available times, prices, and more at rocketcenter.com and get ready to blast off. With the Saturn rocket project completed, Kenny remained at the Marshall Space Center to work on Von Braun's next project, the Skylab Orbital Space Station. Skylab, you know, he planned Skylab while we were still going to the moon. Five months after we had the last mission to the moon in 1972, he'd already built Skylab. Wow. And we launched it five months after the last mission to the moon. And he was selling the Apollo telescope mount in any kind of Apollo hardware that we could bootleg and reuse in a space station. Uh, And then it became Space Lab and Space Shuttle. Space Lab was a habitable scientific laboratory that Marshall was assigned to we were going to do it in-house, and the Europeans said, we'd like to get into manned spaceflight. We'll build those for you free if you'll fly our astronauts <laughs> in it. So we said, deal. Yeah. So I spent seven years working with the European Space Agency. Kenny's experience with the European Space Agency led to his role as a diplomat, working out of the American Embassy in Moscow as a project manager for the International Space Station. The most challenging thing I ever done for NASA was my two years as a diplomat and boots on the ground leading, <laughs> getting the Russians involved. And right. As the environmental control and life support people for the entire station, for the Russians were involved, I, uh, I was in charge of integrating the Japanese, the Europeans, uh, where we had habitable uh, modules of all that together. So I had a lot of experience in international uh, politics and designs. When Clinton became president, he wanted to cut the cost of the station, and he wanted to involve the Russians. And uh, it turned out to be a good deal. It was a big hiccup. We had to redesign the station. Uh, well, the Russians were, they still had Mir in orbit at that time, They right? did, and we, we, when I went over, my job was to let's learn how to operate with them on Mir, and at the same time implement uh, their building of the international modules they would have. Uh, they were hungry for money. They just, you know, we, we were leveraging each other, and uh, which was a win-win. Right. And, uh, but uh, they're very sharp. I, I learned a lot about how good they were. And living in Russia and being a space geek, I've collected stuff all my life on both their program and our program. And they, they did a lot of firsts. 
you know, first satellite, first man in space, first woman in space, first EVA. And I'd hear it when I was in Russia all the time. They'd rehearse it. So one time I got pissed off enough, even as a diplomat, I said, if you guys, and they'd do it in a big meeting where they could boast in front of everybody. Right. I said, if you guys are so good, why don't you go get me one of those American flags? There's six of them up there, and bring it back to me. I never got chided <laughs> again. But I admire what they've done, but they intended to try to prove that uh, they were superior kind of a government right. and capitalism. They were convinced I was a spy because I was a diplomat, told me that right up front with all the people I had to work with. And I said, well, I'm sure he'll know by the end of my two years whether I'm a spy or not, because my apartment was bugged. I was followed everywhere I went. They had a big semi-truck outside my embassy apartment, I mean, complex. Every time I, my wife was there with me, and every time she left to come back to the States, uh, they would try to get a woman into my apartment. Immediately, wow. as soon as I hit the door, phone rang. <laughs> and it got more and more elaborate. And one day I stumbled on the downstairs in the basement where they had all this apparatus that they were they had everybody bugged. <laughs> they all had their headsets on. Wow. Now the CIA bugged my car a year after I was there because I was getting into places that they wanted access. Here I am acting like, you know, I'm clean, man. And then they don't let my van in one day. <laughs> and I don't understand why. So I call the director of the institution. I was, These are huge places like Redstone Arsenal. And they tell me, you can't come in with that car. So I knew, I knew. I said, why? I said, but I already knew. They'd bug my car. And uh, they had compromised my mission. I knew if I went to the ambassador, he would never acknowledge it. Right. So I lived with it. And, uh, <laughs> when I was telling them I was leaving, my tour of duty was over. They were begging me to stay. <laughs> and I mean, in private meetings. And I said, well, you know, two years ago, you said I was a spy. And I said, now you're begging me to stay. I said, well, we know you're not a spy. You've worked on the Saturn rockets, Skylab, and then Space Lab, the Station Space Shuttle. Yeah. Right. The last part before you retired, you were the deputy program manager yeah. for Discovery New Frontiers. It's robotics. Space not, not human. First time I'd been in something robotic, you know? Yeah, and it's, God, it's primarily it exciting, man. space probes to look at yeah. our own solar system. And, and some going to the uh, our galaxy. As a program, we had about 10 projects we were monitoring for NASA headquarters. Were they on track? Were they technically looked like they were good? They were going to meet their schedule, stay within budget, blah, blah, blah. I mean, we were hitting asteroids. <laughs> we, were, we were doing everything you could imagine that the public had a little bit of knowledge about. But yeah, you worked not, on uh, it was the Genesis Project, the Stardust Project, the Deep Impact. Like, you, you hit a comet <laughs> with a probe. Yeah. <laughs> you sent uh, New Horizons, went to Pluto. Yeah. Um, Still going. And it's st- in the copper belt now. So. <laughs> uh, Juno, the Juno project went to Jupiter. It's still going. Uh, Messenger went to Mercury. Yeah. You put the, the Kepler telescope project up there. That was one looking for habitable planets around other stars that there might be life on like there is here. And then and then the Dawn project, and that, that actually two went to two different and, asteroids, yeah. right. And, the, and it was ion propulsion, and they, they had two of the largest asteroids in this big belt past Mars 
was a lot of fragments. And one of them was the size of Texas, and it was all ice. And the other one was smaller, and it was all iron. You won't know what the hell happened. What? Why is one so different than the other out here? And so they fly this iron propulsion. It took them seven years to get to the first one. They orbited it for a year, and then they went to the other one. It was the first craft that we that we had built that that orbited someplace and then went to orbit someplace else. Correct. First one. You've done your homework. I, I've tried. <laughs> <laughs> That's exactly right. When you come to the planetarium here. There's only four of these kind of things in the United States, and this is the most state-of-the-art because it's the most recent. They've got access. They showed me pictures of Horizon, uh, New Horizon, when it went past Pluto that I'd never seen before because you don't get a lot of real-time data. It takes a long time for, sure. for whatever you're doing, but they have a database, and we had access to that database, and they were showing me Pluto like I'd never seen it before. <laughs> and it is amazing what we don't know. All new water experiences in the underwater astronaut tank at the U.S. Space and Rocket Center allow you to experience what it's like to swim in a coral reef, float in outer space, and fly with the dragons in the DIVR plus water excursion. Combining a waterproof virtual reality headset with the snorkel system, you can explore new depths right from the comfort of our heated scuba tank. Museum admission is required, and advanced ticket purchase is encouraged to reserve your time for participants ages 7 and up. Visit rocketcenter.com today for more information. Von Braun hated math, but he read Jules Verne when he was a kid. How can you how can you be an engineer and, and hate math? Well, <laughs> when he loved space exploration, he went and learned math. You find out what their appetites are and you feed it. And you don't have to get them to write if it requires writing. You don't have to get them to learn math if it requires. You find out what their passions are. And then they begin to realize, I'm going to be limited if I don't learn this. And that's what happened when he joined a rocket club where he was hands-on when he was 18. And then he became a Ph.D. Right. But uh, he got put in prison by the Gestapo because all he could think about was exploring space rather than killing people in London. And... Uh, Right towards the end of the war, they, they came after him. And if it hadn't been for Colonel Donenberg, they would have probably executed him right towards the end of the war just because they didn't want the Allies to get him. Von Brown, he was an accomplished uh, musician. Most people don't know that. He wrote operas, space sciences, you know. <laughs> and... Uh, but he could talk to kids as well as he could talk to congressmen, as well as he could talk to young engineers, as well as he could command huge force of people to follow me. Yeah. You, you sound like you're really driven by this idea of exploration. And, and, I am. But you, you never went up. No. <laughs> I like did, terra firma. <laughs> did, you ever, did you ever want to or wish you, wish no. you could have? No? no. There's a lot of us. But there are other guys, they're determined. They're going to run over people. Yeah. To be some, and girls too. No, I, I, I'm just happy getting them there. I just think it's been a wonderful journey. I, I, I try to, I, I've pretty well documented everything in my life, both personal and my wife had Alzheimer's for eight years, so I spent 
a lot of time at home taking care of her. And I use that time to write. I, I'm trying to write the second edition of my autobiography. And there was a Buddhist saying that, uh, and it's sort of like a poem, but I, I captured as my mantra is, I can't tell my work from my hobby. They're one and the same. That, that, that's the kind of life I've had. Man, can you imagine that my hobby is my income? <laughs> I, I hear it in every word you say. I am amazed that at, at 80 years old, you still have the same wonder <laughs> about what you did as you probably had when you were yeah. 18. Oh, and I, I think that's so those things so go incredible. up and said, go, baby, go. <laughs> you've become quite a collector now. And, I have. Uh, I've read that you have uh, all sorts of really, really interesting little nuggets, uh, binders about every space shuttle mission. And, I do. Uh, I, I got over 2,000 original astronauts signatures i got every russian cosmonaut signature except three i also read that you you actually have an expense report from the moon landing yeah <laughs> neil armstrong's 45 dollars he filed he had to file an expense report <laughs> so he said the government paid for this this and and this is what they owe me for this this <laughs> it's so funny you know the, the ironic kind of things that the government never changes. They got to have this report, and so I got a copy of Neil Armstrong's <laughs> expense report of going to the moon. That's fantastic. <laughs> just like Silas Marner looking at his gold, you know. Just <laughs> I enjoy just sitting down and reading it all over again. It's really exciting to me as it was. It's more exciting because I'm reflecting, right. and I really wasn't aware of what I was a part of. I, how important it was. I've got twelve grandchildren of. A few of them are close to being an engineer, software engineer. I don't call that an engineer, but uh, they're in the video and the theater creativity. Uh, I I try to find out what's your bent. The Bible says, train up a child in the way they should go, and they'll not depart from it. Well, a lot of Christian parents think that means take them to church. That is not what that means. It means what is their appetite? What were they created to be? To do, and it's always self-evident. I don't want to encourage them to be engineers. I want them to encourage them to be what? What in the world God created you for? It wasn't just to bless me. He has a purpose for your life. Find it, and then go do it. I had to be an old man before I could look back and say, "This is what I was created to do." Man, I didn't go into it. Two women, my future wife and my mother, says. Go to college in the 50s. <laughs> right. You know, make some money. That sounded pretty good. My wife said she would never marry me if I went to the military. So that was a lot of leverage. <laughs> yeah, but it was part of God working in my life. Go do what you were created to do. And uh, I've had a stroke this year, this past year, where I couldn't walk. I'm rehabilitated in a week. I'm walking again. Had coronavirus. Survived that. Had cancer on the back of my ear here. Had that removed. And I just look at it as, well, he's not through with me yet. I'm ready to die, but there's more to do. <laughs> and here it is. Here I am. Well, we're glad you're Spilling here. my guts here with you guys. Thank you so much for, <laughs> for sharing with us. I, I challenge people who get to hear whatever you put out. Uh, dream. Meditate. Then go do it. Because there's a scripture it says, I can do more, this is God speaking to us, than you can even imagine. Man, what a challenge. My son, he said, Daddy, when I read that, he says, I tell God, you don't know how big I can imagine. And God says, 
imagine. And uh, change. I mean, you can you can enjoy something that everybody's going to benefit when you're doing what you were created to do. And, and God help the parents understand how to nurture that. I've got a spaceship that I'm waiting for I'm flying up to the stars I'm gonna dare to explore this time And I'll let 